So stories of faith, they all tend to have the same shape. But often, they're made up of different ingredients. you got some stories that are big. They're seen by many. I think of the people of Israel crossing through the Red Sea, trusting that God would keep those waters from crashing down upon them. Others are smaller, known only to the individual and maybe a few bystanders. This might be the story of a mother who chooses to quietly pray for her children day in and day out trusting that those prayers will in some way move the hand of God, or a father who chooses to humble himself before his child, asking for forgiveness, trusting that the way of humility and submission is better than the way of pride and stubbornness. I I chose those both things on purpose because as a father, I tend to be the one that has to apologize more often to my kids than my wife does. Regardless of the scenario These things always boil down to a choice between following one path versus following another. And the paths before us are always paths that conform to the pattern of this world or the pattern of Christ. Last week, we looked at two figures, King Ahaz and Joseph. If you remember, both of these individuals were faced with difficult or jarring scenarios. Both of them were confronted with a word from God, and both had to decide whether they would submit or entrust themselves to God's word or to their own ideas and their own understanding. Either way, a step of faith would be required. And so the difference is not whether we exercise faith, but rather in who or what the object of our faith is. See, we're always exercising faith in some way, shape, or form. We're always entrusting ourselves to something or someone. It's just a matter of who or what that particular person or thing is. This morning, as we continue moving forward in Matthew's retelling of the birth narratives of Christ, we're confronted again with a question of faith or allegiance as another choose this day whom you will serve story is placed before us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. You can look in your bulletin as well, but I would encourage you to take your Bible out if you have it with you. Like we did last week, what I'd like to do is look at the New Testament passage first and then zoom out to see how the Old Testament backdrop fills in the spaces or gaps that might be left um, without digging a little bit deeper. And ultimately, what I want to do is to understand how the story of Herod and the wise man, how it applies to us. And so let's take a look, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So a couple of things right off the bat. Matthew wants his readers to understand that the events that are about to unfold happened in a specific time and a specific place in history. It was after Jesus was born. It was in Bethlehem of Judea. It was in the days of Herod the king. And so there's a time stamp on this particular event. Herod ruled over Judea under the authority of Rome from 37 B.C. until he died in 4 B.C. 
which places the birth of Jesus somewhere around 5 or 6 B.C. The second thing we notice about those first couple of verses is enter the wise men or the magi. Who are these guys? First of all, we don't know if there were three of them. We know there's three gifts, but we don't know if there were three magi. Maybe there were two, maybe there were six, maybe there were 30. We don't really know. Probably not 30. That seems like a lot. The text says that they're from the east. Scholars argue that they were astrologers from the royal court of the king of Persia. One scholar notes that part of their job description was to make the king of Persia look good. The term itself, magi, it actually has negative connotations. It's used in the book of Daniel to describe Daniel's enemies. <clears throat> and it's used in the book of Acts to negatively describe two magicians. In other words... These visitors from the east are pagans. They do not worship the God of Israel, and worse, they practice magic, divination, and astrology, all of which are forbidden by God. It's a really important thing for us to understand as we're working our way through this particular story. Third, notice who they're looking for. They're looking for the king of the Jews. So what's going on here? Well, in the ancient world, the rising of a special star was understood to be a cosmic sign that an important birth, possibly a royal birth, had occurred. They must have seen this sign in the West, so they traveled with the goal of finding out who this king was. They headed toward Jerusalem, knowing that this is where a king would be residing. And they asked Herod, assuming that he, being a king himself, would know what was going on. And so what's the point? This is where we need to be careful of getting lost in debates about the nature of this star. Was this Halley's Comet? People argue that. That's a cough drop. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, man. I'm having fun. Probably not Halley's Comet. That appeared around 1211 BC, which is too early. Some have argued that what the Magi see is a planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which would have taken place in 7 BC. Another theory is a supernova, which is argued to have taken place in around 4 or 5 BC, which that could have been the case. It fits the timeline, but none of this is really the point. The point is that these foreign pagan astrologists who practice magic and divination are somehow drawn to the place of the Messiah's birth. And as we'll see in a few moments, are the first people in Matthew's account to worship Christ. That's important. That's important. These foreign pagans who practice divination, astrology, all things forbidden by the law of God, are drawn to the Messiah, and in Matthew's account are the first ones to worship the Christ. The first ones to worship the Christ. One scholar says it like this, and I have a slide for this. Craig Keener says, although the Bible forbade divination, which includes astrology, for one, a special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chose to reveal himself where the pagans were looking. Without condoning astrology, Matthew's narrative challenges our prejudice against outsiders to our faith. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus if given the opportunity. The most pagan of pagans may respond to Jesus if given the opportunity. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? And if we say we believe that, do we live in light of this belief? 
Now, astrologers and magicians probably aren't the people who come to our minds when we think of pagans. And so as your mind is filling up the pagan category, do you truly believe that God wants to and is able to turn their hearts toward him? And what role might you be called to play in that process, remembering that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? See, the point that Matthew is trying to make and what he's communicating to us through this unlikely and unorthodox path to Christ is that the good news of the kingdom is good news for all. The good news of the kingdom is good news for all. That's massively important that we wrap our minds around what's going on there. Let's, let's look back at the text. It says in verses 3 and following, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It says that Herod and everyone in Jerusalem were troubled. Now, this is more than concern. This is more like, like I've been watching the New York Rangers. I'm a New York Rangers fan, and, and we had all these high hopes for them this year because they got to the conference finals last year, and we were like, yes, this is it. They're going to win the cup this year. Um, and, and, and I've been troubled by their performance this year. I've been troubled. Um, they've just been losing a lot, and it's, and it's frustrating. It's not that kind of troubling, Right? That's not the sort of concern we're talking about. What we're dealing with in this particular term is, is, is the language of like a panic attack or, or like crippling fear. It, the word is used to describe physical movement, shaking, or even an earthquake. And so when it's applied to the emotions of an individual, it's that deep feeling that, that you get of, of of fear and uncertainty and of anxiety when, when maybe you know you might be getting found out about something, like, like maybe a kid in school is about to get found out for something they did wrong. I'm sure Brian has experienced this in the principal's office with students coming in troubled. Never. Why is he so troubled? Why is he experiencing this fear, this panic? Because from where he's standing, his throne is in jeopardy. From where he's standing, his throne is in jeopardy. But then it says all of Jerusalem was troubled, which is such an interesting little phrase. Once again, Matthew is setting up a scenario where the people confronted with this news must choose this day whom they will serve. They must choose this day whom they will serve. Herod, all the people of Jerusalem, and even these religious leaders that we look at in just a moment, that are hearing this information about, about a, a child being born in Bethlehem, who actually know who this child could possibly be. They're troubled, and they're faced with a decision to choose this day whom they will serve. The pagan magis are making a choice. Herod is about to make a choice, and the people of Jerusalem are being confronted with a choice. 
And so in his panic state, Herod consults the religious leaders, another group who will also need to make a choice as to where the Christ was to be born, which is where our Old Testament backdrop is picked up. The point of what's going on in this text is what Matthew does in these first six verses is he lays aside, he lays side by side a king, the people of Jerusalem, the religious leaders of God's people, and some pagan magicians, all of whom are confronted with a decision as to what they will do with the news about the birth of this child who has been born king of the Jews. So the question that's resonating in all of our minds and, and possibly in, in the minds of these people, who will we entrust ourselves to? Right? Same sermon as last week, guys. Hate to break the news to you. Who will we entrust ourselves to? Will we entrust ourselves to this king or will we entrust ourselves to some other promise? And I think that's actually an important way to, to articulate it. Will we entrust ourselves to this king or will we entrust ourselves to some other promise? Because in reality, most of us aren't bowing down to particular idols, literally speaking. But we do entrust ourselves to promises, all sorts of promises, whether they be emotional health promises, mental health promises, whether they be physical promises, all sorts of promises. And we look everywhere for these promises to be fulfilled in us. And the scriptures are confronting us saying, will you follow the king? Will you follow the king? Or will we search out some other means to fulfill whatever promise we're hoping to, to, be, to be met? That's always what the scriptures are doing as we read through them. These choices are placed before us. And God is saying, choose this day whom you will serve. And day in and day out, we're forced to make those decisions. And so Herod is shaking in his boots because he is fearful that his kingdom, his throne is being jeopardized. And he has to decide, what am I going to entrust myself to? Jerusalem has to decide, what am I going to entrust myself to? These religious leaders have to decide, what am I going to entrust myself to? These magi, these wise men have to decide, what am I going to entrust myself to? And so, like I said, he talks to these religious leaders. They tell him that the, the, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they cite Micah saying, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Israel. And embedded in that citation is also this allusion to Ezekiel 34. But we're first going to look at Micah chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. We also have it up on the screen. Now, at first glance, before we read the text, there's a few things going on here. This is a clear prophecy regarding the location of the Messiah's birth. But there's also a word about a ruler, one who will shepherd my people Israel. If you're Herod, these aren't words of comfort. If you are Israel, these are absolutely words of comfort. Let's read through here, starting in verse 2 of Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be born, to be ruler in Israel, excuse me, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their prince. When the Assyrian comes into your land and treads in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men." So really quick, right, we talked about this last week. When, when a New Testament writer is quoting or alluding to an Old Testament passage, he's not just quoting that one verse, but he's saying, hey, I want you to look at this entire section, all right? Not just this one verse, this entire section. They didn't have verse and chapter divisions in those days, so you have to look at the section that the, the New Testament writer is quoting. And so really quick, some information about Micah. He's prophesying during the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah. We talked about Ahaz last week. And the specific portion of his prophecy that is cited in Matthew is a prophecy concerning the latter days. What are the latter days? Right? Those are the days that began when Jesus entered on the scene. We are living in the latter days. We've talked about this already and not yet. We're in the already. We're not in the not yet yet. You got it. If you remember from last week, we talked about double fulfillment in Isaiah's prophecy about the young woman or the virgin. And what we're having here is this is just a distant fulfillment in this particular section. Micah is just prophesying about what's going to happen, not what's going to happen immediately, but what's going to happen in the future. Verse 2 highlights the unexpectedness of Bethlehem being the birthplace of this ruler who is coming forth from old, from ancient days. What's interesting about that particular phrase is that it comes from the Hebrew word meaning forever, and so maybe there is some divine lineage being um, alluded to about this particular child that will be born in Bethlehem. Verse 4 says that this ruler will stand and shepherd his flock and that he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And so the point, this prophecy highlights the shepherding role that this ruler will take and that his rule and reign will extend to the ends of the earth. The magi coming from the east are beginning to make more and more sense. But what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 34. If you want to turn there, you can. I also have it up on the board. Verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read through this. There's a lot of, a lot of text this morning, so, so bear with me. The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So the shepherd we're, we're looking at here are the shepherds that, that Ezekiel is prophesying against are shepherds that exploited the sheep. They didn't care for the sheep. They actually used the sheep for their own gain. They fed on the sheep. What, what Matthew is doing is he's putting side by side Herod 
and these shepherds that are being talked about in Ezekiel 34, these false shepherds that, that, that the people of God were entrusting themselves to but were being devoured by. And so Ezekiel's speaking against these particular shepherds. And he says in verse 7, Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. See, Israel has seen many shepherds come and go. Shepherds that have done what is right in the sight of the Lord. Shepherds that have, that have not done what is right in the sight of the Lord. Shepherds that have exploited the people of God. And like I just said, Matthew is setting up Herod to be this very sort of shepherd. He eats the fat, he clothes himself with wool, and he slaughters the fat one, but he never feeds the sheep. But it is in the promise of verse 10 where the people of God find their hope. See, the original hearers of this particular prophecy were living in Babylonian exile, and they hear the words, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they will not be food for them. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And so this is good news. See, I want to I wanna, like, step back from my notes for a second because I want to talk about these, these particular shepherds that, that feast on the flock rather than feed the flock. And see, this is what we need to be careful as followers of Jesus is that we would not become these. See, see I have to be careful of this as a pastor. See, there's a lot of story. I don't know if you've heard the stories going around in, in evangelicalism over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but there's been many a shepherd who have just feasted upon their flocks rather than fed their flocks. And so I read this passage and I kind of tremble. I'm like, I'm like I don't want to be this guy. I really don't want to be this guy. But even for us who, who, who care for, for, for our children or, or who are community group leaders, ministry leaders, whatever the case may be, these, these little flocks that we've been entrusted with, we, we, need to, we need to be careful that we're not feeding on those people that are underneath us, but that we're serving them. And see, that's the beauty of what we're seeing in the life of Jesus. He's a shepherd king. He's not just a king that comes down from on top and rules over but he's a shepherd king that lives among his people. And as we're going to read at the end of the, the sermon this morning, he's the good shepherd that we'll look at in John. That's so important that we get that and that we model our lives after the good shepherd of Jesus. But see, these shepherds of Israel were not living out their calling to serve the people of God. It says, um, as we read, continue in, in verse 11, it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. When he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel, shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. 
I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet and must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant shall be the prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken." See, the Lord says that he will be the one who seeks them out and that in seeking them out, he will bring them out from the peoples and from the countries. Again, this gathering of sheep that will come to pass is a gathering that will extend beyond the borders of Israel into some of the most unexpected places, gathering some of the most unexpected people. But I think for our purposes this morning, as we're looking at that text in Ezekiel, and we're thinking of, of our own lives and the struggles that we might endure as we go through, especially during this, this holiday season that, that is both joyful and difficult all at the same time, is that we have a shepherd, a God, who seeks us out, who loves us, who cares for us. In the most darkest of times, he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the God we serve. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. And he has to be the one whom we entrust ourselves to, especially in those times of difficulty, of pain, of darkness. Remember, there are so many things being promised to us from all over, from every single direction, but the only one who makes good on his promises to be with us, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And I, the Lord, will be their God. He's the one who makes good on his promises, who walks with us, even when it's most difficult. And, and, and the beautiful thing, what he does, and I'm way off my notes right now, the beautiful thing that he does is that he, he pours himself out into the church, the people of God. And, and so, so we don't have this, this shepherd that's, that's far off that we can't see or touch, but, but rather we have it manifested in the body of Christ through the work of the Spirit that when we are going through what we go through, we lean on one another. We lean on one another. That has to be how we understand the New Testament understanding of walking with God. It's walking with his people. If we are filled with the Spirit, right, if that's true, if the body of Christ is more than just a metaphor, then as we lean on one another, we are receiving God's grace as we walk through this life 
shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, holding one another up. See, the community of faith is a massively big deal. Because it's not just like, like this isn't the Elks Lodge, right? This isn't just like, like whatever, right? Like any sort of like club, right? I'm thinking of the Flintstones and their, you know, whatever they wear. Um, like that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is the family of God. The, the spirit indwelt family of God. And we're called to shoulder one another's burdens, to be those shepherds to one another, to not eat and devour one another, but to carry one another through. I know I've experienced this, and I know many of you have experienced this in our community of faith. Like, we've experienced this. I've seen it happen. I've been encouraged by it. And we need to cultivate that. We need to keep pushing to that. And we need to... Those of us who are a little timid to, to entrust ourselves because maybe we don't want to be a burden, right? That's always the thing. Well, it's like, oh, no, no, I'll take care of it myself because we're so American, right? And we're so individualistic. And we need to be so careful that we're like, oh, no, I don't want to burden you. Like, no, 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 burden us. Burden us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? If Jesus says that, I think he commands us to say it to one another. Like, burden us. In your community groups, burden one another. Carry one another's loads. Shoulder the pain and the grief. Shoulder the financial burdens that maybe some of us are going through. Like, yes, we do that as the, as the benevolence team here at the church, but even in your community groups, imagine if we were a people that lived out this faith, faith as we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, where there was not a single need among us. Imagine if that's what we could be. I know like I'm speaking idealistically. I get it. I get it. And I know we can like, you know, we can, we can get like warm and fuzzy thinking about this stuff, but like that's actually what the church looks like in, in, in the New Testament. It's what Paul calls us to as he writes those letters, to be the hands and feet of Jesus with one another. Right? We talk about it all the time that we might be a people who show the world what God is like. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is, is, yes, we proclaim the good news of Jesus, but, but also that we can be a community that, that shoulders one another's burdens and griefs and, and, and whatever the case may be, so much so that, that people start to look and be like, wait, what, who, who helped you pay rent? Your, your church? That's weird. Like, oh, yeah, let me give you a reason for the hope. Who, who drove you to the hospital? Like, who picked you up? Who did this? Who, who helped you? Who, whatever the case may be. Who? Your church? Yeah, yeah, let me give you a reason for the hope. That's what we are. That's got to be what we are. It's got to be what we are. And, and I'm not, like, I, I, I know I say this all the time. Whenever I, I feel like whenever I give, like, a challenging word, I always have to say, like, hey, I think we're doing good. Like, I do. I really believe we're doing good, right? But, like, let's keep doing that. Let's keep cultivating that sort of life as a people in community with one another. Because we are, we are spirit, we are the spirit indwelt people of God. And, and that's the privilege we have. Give, give, give us your burdens. Everyone should be saying that to one another. Give, give me your burden. What can I do? How can I carry it? How can I help? That's good news. If we're not doing that, it's not good news not. If it's just like a get out of jail free card or a get out of hell free card, that's not good news, guys. It's more, it's got to be more than that, right? Where am I at? Oh, 
Herod was a false shepherd. I'm just going to jump in. He was a puppet king placed there by Rome, but right under his nose, a new kingdom was being unleashed into the world, and this new kingdom was accessible to all who came and worshipped the king. Matthew's making a point here as he cites these two passages. First of all, he is identifying this child born in Bethlehem as the shepherd of Micah and Ezekiel. And he's also indicting Herod. But more importantly, Matthew's use of the Old Testament backdrop, coupled with the presence of the Magi, is teaching us something about the nature of God's kingdom, that it is a kingdom that is drawing from the peoples and from the countries. And as it says in Micah 5.8, it is comprised of a remnant that shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. See, Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. And so in highlighting the Magi as worshipers of this child and pointing out the universal nature of his role as shepherd through these Old Testament passages, they are being challenged to see the broadness of God's kingdom vision. And so too are we. Yes, the, the road is narrow, but the vision is wide. The road is narrow, but the vision is wide. As I asked just a few minutes ago, who are the people that come to our mind who we just can't ever imagine coming to faith? And is our imagination so broken by our own biases that we are unwilling to move toward the other with the love and kindness of Christ? As followers of Jesus, we simply need to be better at this I need to be better at this. And what we need to remember is that God saves sinners and then he makes them holy. God saves sinners and then he makes him holy. We need to stop trying to sanctify people before giving them the good news and allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he does. And see, the church, has we've struggled with that over the years. We've struggled with that. We've, we've wanted to, to make people holy first, to instruct them on all the ways that they are an abomination, right? We like that word, abomination. Right? That's a great way to start a, an evangelistic conversation. You are an abomination, right? Like, no, no, no. The kindness of God leads to repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance, Turn back with me to Matthew. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child Mary and his mother. Mary and, and maybe Joseph was there welcome these men into their homes. These foreign men, pagans, men who practice divination. So when asked the question about who is really our shepherd, Mary and Joseph's life is already pointing to this child as they open their homes to these foreigners who practice divination. See, I'm fully aware of the cultural moment we're all living through. My equilibrium is just as thrown off as everyone in this room. 
Whether we're talking about sexual identity, gender identity, political identity, whatever it is. If we claim the name of Jesus, if we look to him as our shepherd, then we are to be a people marked by sincere love and hospitality. Sincere is a really important modifier there. Because the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. And not only from among the nations, but from the pagans. Even those we perceive to be the worst offenders. And what this means, and I'm preaching to myself now, is that we have to be willing to rub elbows with people, image bearers. Maybe that's a better way for us to start framing the people we come in contact with who fill up our categories of pagan or unclean, and not just so we can add another notch to our evangelistic belt, but with sincere love and hospitality, with sincere love and compassion and grace, moving toward who we deem to be the other. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. Jesus is called a friend of what? Sinners. Friend of sinners. That's us. That's, that's what we're called to be. We're to embody that. And we see that right in this story as the Magi come from the East, these pagan worshipers, not worshipers, whatever, divination practicers, I don't know how to say that. We see that. They welcome them. And what do they do? They worship the king. Now, I don't know if the Magi quit divination on that day. Doesn't say doesn't say. But I trust that God, who called these wise men, these magi, these pagan practicers of divination to worship his son Jesus, I, I can't imagine that he said, all right, I'm done with you. I imagine that there lies, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm, key word, imagine. I'm using my imagination, my sanctified imagination. I imagine that, that these men, after they were confronted with, with the person of Jesus, that something started changing in their lives as they made their way back east. I imagine something happened. Let's read the text a little bit here. Verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. This is, we're going back a little bit. And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod, what a guy. We're going to learn in a few minutes. That's not really his goal. Well, no, next week we'll learn. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had seen when it rose went over them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They see the star. And then verse 12, look what it says. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so Herod calls the Magi to the side. He asks them to let him know where the child is once they find him. The star leads them to the child. They offer gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This would have reminded Jewish readers of the Queen of Sheba bringing gifts to King Solomon. And finally, in verse 12, they're warned in a dream to not return to Herod. And what do they do? They departed to their own country by another way. This is actually incredible. Remember King Ahaz and Joseph from last week. They're both confronted with a word from God. Both exercise faith. One puts their faith in the kingdom of Assyria, while the other entrusts themselves to the word of God. Here, we have a similar situation unfold. Herod and the religious leaders are confronted with the word of God. 
that this shepherd, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. Herod seems to believe it because, as we'll learn next week, he wants to kill the kid. So he obviously thinks something's up. The religious leaders, they just do nothing. We don't really hear much about them. And these wise men go and worship, but they don't just worship like with their hands in the air, like on a Sunday morning, singing our favorite Hillsong song, whatever the case may be. No, they actually put some legs on their faith and they submit to the word of God rather than the word of Herod. You catch that? The wise men submit to this child as their shepherd, and they do so not only in bowing down and worshiping and bringing gifts, but they do so in how they choose to live their lives. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They said, yeah, 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 guys, we're not going to listen to Herod, right? We're not, we're not going to go back. And they're like, yeah, 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 let's get out of here. And, and they don't honor Herod, but they honored the shepherd king, who was a little boy at the time. What did they entrust themselves to? They entrusted themselves to the king, the king of the Jews, that they came to worship. These foreign pagan practices of divination, astrologists, worshiped the king, and they followed through on that worship. It affected the way they lived their lives. See, that's why in my imagination, I imagine that these guys didn't just go back to, to doing everything they did. Because not only were they confronted with the word of God, not only did they worship the king, but they actually put legs on their faith and they did something. They didn't submit to Herod, they submitted to God. And this is where the main points of our passage begin to converge. The Magi teach us that the good news of the kingdom moves beyond the borders of Israel and into the lives of some of the least likely candidates. And they also teach us that to call Jesus our shepherd means more than simply worshiping him in word and even more than giving costly gifts, it also means that we pattern our lives after him and allow his voice to guide and direct us, not the voice of the world, its powers, its institutions. Whose voice are we listening to? Turn with me to John chapter 10. I don't have a, a slide for this, so. John chapter 10. Verses 1 and following. I'm just going to read this over us because I think it's that important. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired A hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he doesn't care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus and his word are what we are called to entrust ourselves to. And in so doing, he promises life abundant, not just eternal life, not just life in the hereafter and the by and by, but abundant life. What that doesn't mean It doesn't mean ease. It doesn't mean painless existence, full bank accounts. It doesn't mean that. It means, though, that our God walks with us. That he is our God and we are his people. And in him we have life. We have salvation. We have hope. We have peace. In him we have one another that we have been united to by this beautiful work of God's grace in and through our lives. And so whatever voices might be calling to us, whatever promises might be being made that that draw us away from the people of God, from the person and work of Jesus, from this walk that we have been called to, what God is saying is, 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 Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Walk with him. Do not be deceived by the thieves and the robbers. Do not be deceived by the voices of this world, but fix your eyes on Christ. Hear his voice to to pick up our crosses, to follow him, to entrust ourselves to one another in the midst of his people, to entrust ourselves to Christ for the salvation of our souls. And to live in a way that reveals to the world who this king is. The king of Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That's what we're called to, Redeemer Fellowship. That's good news. Who is our shepherd? Who is our shepherd? That's the question we need to wrestle with. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord God. 
We thank you that you are the good shepherd. You are not just a hired hand, Father, but that you lay down your life for us, Father. Lord, you instruct Peter to feed your sheep, to shepherd your sheep, to care for your sheep. I pray that we would do the same, that we would, would, would live out that calling that was placed upon the life of Peter, that we would feed one another, that we would care for one another, that we would embody this, this person, Jesus, the good shepherd, as we relate to one another and love one another. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord God. Let us not be deceived by the promises of this world, but submit ourselves to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.